Make sure you get a handout there in the middle. We'll be on uh, infinitely better. We are in number 19, still in chapter 7, but we are in number 19, so quite a few, right? Quite a few. Well, I don't have any Alabama jokes tonight, so you are safe if you are an Alabama fan. Yeah, look at there. It's already started out right, see? But yeah, I don't have any of those for us tonight, so I'll be working on a new one for the next time. Just fun, just fun. Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, now, uh, to recap, as we get into Melchizedek and we get a little more information about that, I know the last few weeks we've talked about uh, Melchizedek and then also, uh, if you'll remember, uh, in chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews references Melchizedek, and he took, a, he took a pause in chapter 5 because uh, he said, listen, you know, you, you're not even ready to receive this because of spiritual immaturity. Now, he didn't go back and explain it. He actually paused, and then he talked about uh, some of that spiritual immaturity, and even in Hebrews chapter 6, when Pastor Tony talked about the first part of Hebrews chapter 6 and how, uh, you know, the verses of 4 through 6, which are sometimes a a cause of concern, people of confusion, I guess you'd say. And so as we go through that, the writer of Hebrews dealt with that issue of of not being a believer. And then we get back to chapter 7, and so he restarts the conversation or continues maybe the conversation that he began in chapter 5. And and so again, we're talking about Melchizedek tonight. And so we're going to talk about the aspects of the priesthood. And uh, this is such a fascinating part of Scripture. And uh, Pastor Tony and I were talking this week, and you know, thankfully for us as a church, we've journeyed from chapter 1 to chapter 7. And so we spent time in chapter 1 talking about the supremacy of who Jesus is and how Jesus is better. And, and the writer of Hebrews really, um, I guess you'd say, plays into uh, what the Jews were accustomed to. And so he uses uh, a lot of Jewish history to get uh, across his point. And so uh, we see a lot when he references the Israelites' journey uh, from Egypt and how they got to the edge of the promised land. And so he references some of the Psalms and that. But he, he, he uses this as a building stage to get us to chapter 7. So if you were on a deserted island somewhere and the Bible was dropped in your hand and you'd never read it before and you turned to chapter 7, you'd probably be confused. Uh, But again, thankfully, we've been able to walk in this journey from chapter 1, and so all of these build upon each other, and so if you did miss one or a few of those, uh, they're all on the website, and it certainly would be helpful for you to go back and to listen to those, because it'll bring some clarity to some of the things as we built upon this. And so as we get to uh, chapter 7, the focus is on the priestly order of Melchizedek and what that means, and and ultimately for us today, why that matters. And so we'll answer those questions tonight as we get into this. And so in, in verse 11 is where we'll pick up, and it's on the top of your handout there. The writer of Hebrews says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For, the, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And so to begin with tonight, the author contends that the old priesthood was insufficient. So he says, you know, if perfection was attained through the Levitical priesthood, there would have been no need for anything new or anything different. And so he's contending that the old priesthood was insufficient and it was to be replaced 
uh, because it could not bring people to perfection. Uh, I was sharing with my D group earlier today. Uh, I read this thing this week. It said, and, and I grew up this way, maybe you did, is that uh, abide by these laws in the Bible or you burn in hell. You know, that was legalism, right? It's, you do this or you fail. But the gospel is you failed, so Jesus did this for you, right? That's what the gospel is. And so the Levitical priesthood was not ever meant for you and I to achieve perfection. And we'll, we'll get to that uh, more in detail in a second. So he uses the word perfection here. He says if perfection had been attainable. And so <clears throat> the word perfection often has the meaning in Scripture of maturity or completeness, right? And so it, it means that we would grow in perfection, that we would be uh, perfect as our Father in heaven is, in, uh, is perfect, which Matthew talks about. And so oftentimes in Scripture when you see the word perfect, it means to grow into maturity or to finally be in completeness of who God created us to be. However, here in uh, chapter 7, uh, the author is referring to the consummation or the fulfillment of the process. And so it's, it's similar. It's, it's almost the same thing. But he has a, a little different uh, angle here. And so as he's referring to this perfection, uh, it means the consummation or the fulfillment of the process. And so certainly the Levitical priesthood served its place. And we're going to really dig into that here in a second. Uh, but it was never meant for uh, perfection to be achieved because why? Because it was all humans who were priests. They were all uh, from the tribe of Levi. And so it means here then in this perfection that Jesus, who was the perfect high priest, is true perfection in a way that only one who is both fully divine and fully human can embody. Now, this makes me think about the hypostatic union, which is a theological term that simply means that Jesus was fully God. So he was 100% God. He had all the uh, deistic uh, attributes. He was uh, fully 100% God when he was on earth. But he was also fully 100% man. I mean, we know that by the emotions that uh, Jesus exhibited, John eleven thirty five, and uh, lots of other places that talk about Jesus and uh, his humanistic side. And so God was both, uh, through Jesus, he was both divine and he was human. But he was perfect, which, you know, as we've talked a few weeks ago, was the requirement for redemption, was a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus was the perfect then high priest as we get to the fact that uh, the Levitical priesthood could never achieve perfection. And so again... Jesus being the perfect high priest was the only one that could achieve that. And so the fact that Jesus was perfect was the defining characteristic of his priestly ministry. And this goes without saying, but if Jesus were not perfect, then he would have been just like all of the uh, descendants of Aaron, right, in the tribe of Levi. Is that he would have, you know, if he had failed in achieving, uh, if he had failed in perfection, which obviously he didn't. So the defining characteristic of Jesus' priestly ministry, the separating factor, the differentiating factor, was that Jesus was perfect and every other Levitical priest was imperfect, was a sinner, had failed at some point in the law. And so God's process of consummation or redemption then for the believer to, again, to fulfill the process 
That process is to be cleansed from unrighteousness. That's God's plan. That was the purpose of sacrifice, right? And the priestly system is that they would bring a sacrifice uh, to offer, and the priest would offer that sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the individual. And so in doing so, we would be cleansed from unrighteousness and be presented holy before God Almighty. Right? To be holy before God. Well, how do we do that? How do we uh, stand before God holy? Well, there has to be an absence of unrighteousness. Well, there is a big problem with that. How in the world are we going to be able to stand before God as holy, as righteous, free from unrighteousness, cleansed from unrighteousness? Well, how can we do that? Well, there's a problem because we are all full of sin. We can't save ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. There's no method to do that because, again, Romans chapter 5, we're all born with Adam's sin nature and we have the inability to cleanse ourselves to achieve perfection. We cannot do that. And so because of that, we have a problem. How are we going to stand before God as holy? How are we going to stand before God as cleansed from our unrighteousness? That's one of the problems that you've heard hundreds of times before. I've heard the same thing as you invite someone to church. Uh, you invite your neighbor or whoever, a coworker to church, and they say, well, when I get things straightened out, when I get cleaned up, you've heard this before, then I'll come. Which assumes the fact that we have the ability to clean ourselves, to cleanse ourselves from sin or unrighteousness. And in, in essence, that's what they're saying. And you maybe, you know, we maybe said the same thing. Well, I'll come to church when I feel like I'm good enough. I mean, people have said that for ages. But that assumes the fact that we have the ability to clean ourselves. And you ask anyone who's riddled with sin uh, as far as addictions or uh, sins that they can't shake, ask any single person who is in the middle of that, and they tell you this, if I could do it, I would, Right? If they could shake the addiction, if they could shake the sin, the Bible that says that so easily entangles us, if you could do that, if I could do that, we would do it. But we can't. And so that creates a problem that in order for us to stand before God holy, that we've got to be free of sin, and, well, we can't do that. You see, how was Moses allowed to see God? When, when, when Moses showed up and the bush was burning, what did God say? He said, take off your sandals because the place that you're standing is holy ground. Now, to be in the presence of God, there is the absence of sin, right? And so the absence of sin is the presence of God. And so Moses was not allowed to stand simply as he was because of his unrighteousness. And God said, this is holy ground. And so when God came by Moses, what did he do? He saw the back of God. That's what Moses saw, right? And so, in order to be in the presence, well, we can't be in the presence of God if we have sin, because sin cannot be in the presence of God. What is heaven full of? The absence of sin, right? And so, that's, you know, part of uh, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Salvation is uh, free from the penalty of sin, so when you and I get saved, we are no longer bound by the penalty of sin. That the penalty of sin, the wages of death, the wages of sin is death. So those wages we no longer are responsible for. God paid those. And so in salvation, we're free from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, in our growing in holiness or in righteousness, we then become free from the power of sin. 
And so we, uh, as God infiltrates us and God shapes us and God changes us and God transforms us, then the power of sin has less and less and less effect on us. And then when we get to heaven, we receive what? Our glorified body. And so when that happens, when glorification takes place, then we are free from the presence of sin. And so that's where we stand before God, holy and righteous, not based on our own works, but based upon what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so in order for us to be in the presence of God, there has to be the absence of sin. And so in order for us to approach God then, in order for us to have access to God, we have to be perfected. We have to be perfected. To to have access to God... In order for us to approach him, you got to be perfect. So think about this. Now, this is precisely what the old covenant law could not provide. The law never brought perfection. The Levitical priesthood and all the sacrifices that were given, they never brought about perfection for the individual. And so, now, of course, this doesn't negate the fact that God used the law and presented the law for a purpose. The law, of course, had a purpose. It served a purpose, an absolute purpose, but it was not the purpose of making us righteous. You see, the, the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system was basically the original, it was the first credit card, if you will. All right? So what happened is that the, the sinner would present uh, the sin and the sacrifice, and the sin would be put on credit. But it never wiped it away. It just prolonged the payment, right? It just uh, perpetrated it into the future. And that's the problem where legalism fails is that in legalism and in a works-based righteousness is that, well, if I can just do enough good things, then ultimately I will achieve what it is that God wants me to achieve. When I was uh, growing up, uh, there was this big revival that took place. And uh, there were... There were 1,200 decisions that were made in a three-month span of time. The revival lasted over 90 days in a row. So, I mean, it was crazy. The news was there. It was a big thing. And so, you know, all this, you know, it was just crazy. And people were getting saved left and right. Well, there was this one friend of mine that, uh, that he, you know, he made a decision. And so he thought, well, you know, I've sinned. It was works-based righteousness that was being presented. And so he, you know, sinned. Of course he did. He's a human. And uh, he failed. And so he came down and got saved. And so he would come down and he would get saved. And then he'd be good for a week or two. And then he'd fail again. Imagine that, right? We all fail. And so then he would come down and he would get saved again. Or he'd make another decision. This happened 11 times. 11 times. And so I remember one, we worked together. And so I remember one day we were out doing some landscaping. And, um, you know, he made the comment. He said, you know, I just, I just don't know. He said, I just think I'm going to give up. And I said, well, well, why would you do that? And he says, well, I just, I just don't think I'm ever going to get it right. And you know, he's right. He's not. And I'm not, and you're not. Nobody is. We're never going to get it right because the law never was intended to bring about perfection. But when we serve a works-based righteousness, the expectation is if you don't achieve perfection, which no one has or will, humanly speaking, then guess what? You fail. And so now we all fail. So then he got to the point, so he thought, well, if there's no way ever for me to achieve that, I should just quit. I should just give up. So that's where legalism fails. You see, the law existed simply to enhance our awareness of sin. It was never to bring us to the point to where we would uh, achieve the perfection. Think about it this way. 
uh, apply it to another situation. So the law exists to enhance our awareness of sin. And we joke about this all the time. <coughs> Excuse me. But think about the speed limit. Do speed limit, do we always, you know, when they started, you know, putting signs up years ago, and now we know the speed limit, and, you know, John Clark, it, it should be 80. That would be really good, but it's not. I mean, I would love for it to be, but it's not. Um, but it's 30 or whatever it is that you can tell I abide by it. I do. I really, I do. <laughs> it's 30, I think. And uh, so, so anyway, this has turned into confession, and... Uh, <laughs> So the law is imperfect, right, is what I'm saying. No, but think about it. The, the speed limit is 30, but that doesn't mean we, like, every time we pass a sign and we say, okay, well, it's 30, and so eventually I'm going to do 30, and one day, because I know what the rule is, I'm just going to do it, right? Nobody does that. It, it just makes me aware of the fact that I failed. Every time I pass the sign and I'm doing 45 or 48 or whatever, I realize, yep, I failed again, right? It was... No one has ever looked at a speed limit sign and thought, one day I'm going to nail that. I'm going to get that right. Right? It just makes us aware of the fact that we can't do it. And law, the law, is, that's why it exists, is just to make us aware of that. And I'm glad no law enforcement officers are in here tonight because good for me. We'll have to edit that. <laughs> so this is what the Bible says about it. Let's get past what Matt says about it. Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. So think about it. How great would it be if there were no speed limit on John Clark? That'd be awesome. And anywhere else, right? I mean, we think about in the world today the Audubon, right? The, the uh, big highway that you can drive as fast as you want to. I mean, that's like the dream of every sports fanatic uh, is, you know, sports car fanatics. If I can just get there and do 125 or 100, whatever, you know. There's no law. Well, it, there's no speed limit, so you can't get in trouble for speeding. It was the same thing in, uh, in the worldly system or the law, uh, if you will, is that with us, if we didn't have the law, well, we wouldn't fail because we wouldn't have anything to disobey. Paul says in Romans 5, 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Right? And so the law didn't make us perfect. It was never intended for that. I mean, again, think about the laws today. None of those laws make you perfect. They just make you aware of the fact that you failed. For Christ is the end of the law, Romans 10, 4 says, for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so it's the realization that there's a law that I can't keep, and because I can't keep that law, I am due hell. But because separation from God is not what God intended or uh, proposed for my life, and so what God did is he made a way for me not to receive the just, just punishment that I'm due for the infraction against the law. And so because of Jesus, now I have the ability to be free from the law because of what Jesus did. Now, as we talk about the awareness of sin, again, it's simply what the law does. Animal sacrifices were uh, never meant to give a perfect standing before God. We talked about this last week, or I think it was the week before. Uh, we talked about how, you know, think about the worshiper that would go to the temple and make the sacrifice. As they would stand uh, and they would make that sacrifice and they would expect the priest to stand before God on their behalf. Well, what happened if the priest got sick? Or what happened if the priest went on vacation? Or what happened if the priest, you know, died in a camel accident or whatever? How do I know if he talked to God for me? So there was no peace 
for the Old Testament uh, believer because there was never any uh, assurance of the fact that, that God had forgiven me of the infraction that I had perpetrated against him. Right, And so there was this constant thing that, well, I'm never perfect before God. I mean, I can imagine conversations, especially from a legalist mindset of, well, okay, so we sacrificed last week. Did I sin after, did I do that after we made the sacrifice or before, right? And so there was always this question of, am I good enough? Did I do the right thing? Am I forgiven? And it's because the animal sacrifices were never intended to make the sinner perfect. You see, Hebrews chapter 10, which we'll get to later on, says, for, sin, uh, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Never. It can never. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer uh, have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So he says, if it was worthwhile, if it was sufficient, remember the Levitical priesthood was insufficient. If it was sufficient, they would have done it once and been done, which we'll get to that Jesus was the one who made the sacrifice once for all. And so animal sacrifices didn't bring perfection. The law simply programmed us to see the necessity for an atonement. The law revealed the fact that we couldn't do it, that we were incapable of achieving righteousness through works, and so it was only because of Jesus that we would have any hope of doing that, and so Paul writes in Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so what the law did is it kind of kept the boundaries of, all right, if you guys stay within these fence posts, If you'll stay in these rails until Jesus comes, Jesus is going to nail it for you. Jesus is going to be the one to accomplish the things that you're never able to accomplish for yourself. And so we came to the realization that, hey, we can't do this. There's no way this is going to happen. We've got to have someone to do it for us. And so we become free from the law because of what Jesus accomplished. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that we're free to sin. Right? Romans chapter 6 says that. We can't just do whatever we want to do. Rather, it means that we are free to do the will of God, that we're not constrained by the fact that, am I good enough? Does God receive me based on the things that I do or accomplish for Him? So we obey God not out of outward compulsion, but we obey God because of an inward change of what uh, the gratitude of what Jesus has done for us. And so, The Mosaic system of divine law was not a permanent system, and it never was intended to be. It was added to simply serve as a schoolmaster, right, to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And You see, and again, back to Hebrews chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. And so it was simply never meant to be permanent, but it was a teacher to guide us, to get us to where God intended for us to be, you see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, the Bible says, Why? Then the law. It was added because of transgressions, until the offering should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place the, uh, through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by 
the law. Again, the law was never meant to achieve perfection. It was only meant to make us aware of sin. And so in verse 22, Paul writes, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And so... Verse 25 goes on to say, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So now that Jesus has arrived and accomplished the atonement for us, remember uh, Paul writes, he who knew no sin became sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So for in Christ Jesus, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith, not through works, not through achieving perfection of the law, but through faith. And so as we see the schoolmaster, the guardian, uh, the law was simply meant to do that, to guide us, to give us uh, the, the right path to, to be to where the shadow of who Jesus would ultimately be and to what he would accomplish for us. And so the Levitical sacrifices covered sin, but they did not remove it. Again, it was credit. And so the Levitical system, the sacrifices that they made, it was just a year-over-year continual process of them standing before the priest, bringing their sacrifice, but it never removed their sin. I know in uh, Brazil, a couple of times we've seen this, they, they, have, uh, they have this rope that they'll pull behind this, you know, they'll get somebody out there and it's, uh, I don't know if it's an annual tradition or something, but they'll We've passed a couple times in the cities going to the villages, and you'll see people chasing after this rope. And if they touch it, they're forgiven for the year. And uh, so it's just like, I mean, how's that? I mean, it's the same thing. Well, what if you can't walk? What if you're the lame man in Acts chapter 3, right? How do you get to the rope? So it's based on your, your goodness and your ability, and if you're faster than somebody else, if you're stronger than somebody else, if you got there earlier than somebody else, if you just touch that rope. And so you see people, I mean, I can remember a couple times we're driving in the bus and you see just like this flock of people. It's crazy. So we come up with all these things that we think, well, if you do this or you do this or you do this, then you're saved or you're accepted before God. Well, that's not what... That's not what God intended. And so what the, uh, in essence, basically what the old covenant did, this law, uh, the law-keeping covenant, it kept people at a distance from God rather than bringing them near. Because why? Because they weren't, they weren't able to go in themselves and do that. They weren't able to go into the Holy of Holies. It was a very sacred place. It was only a, a, a few people that were selected. Remember Zechariah? Uh, John's dad was uh, selected. It was once in a lifetime they'd get to go into the Holy of Holies and they'd tie a rope around them and I know we've talked about that several times uh, before. And so was, uh, you couldn't do that unless there were certain uh, criteria that were met. And so here in the, in the Old Covenant, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, well, th- th- that's not something that just anybody can waltz into. Now, as, and as New Testament believers, think about what you have access to. We'll talk about this at the end tonight. But when you want to pray, what do you do? You start talking to God. I start talking to God. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, call unto me and I will answer you. There's no stipulations to that. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what the Bible says in Romans. You call upon the name of the Lord, guess what's going to happen? 
you will be saved according to Scripture. So there's no prerequisites for you to do this and do this and do this and do this. Why is that? Because Jesus did all that. That's why the, the study is called infinitely better because Jesus, and, and from the very beginning in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, what does he say? Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And then what does he say in verse 3? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making what? purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our high priest made purification for our sins. That's who Jesus is. And so we don't have to have all this prerequisites because Jesus achieved all that for us. That's why he's infinitely better. And so the old, the old covenant kept people from a distance Opposed to James 4, 8, where the Bible says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. This is post-resurrection. This is post-veil being torn. That now we have direct access to God. So you can talk to God whenever you want. So what did the new covenant bring that the Old Testament was incapable of delivering? So what is it that the new covenant makes it different? Why, why is this so important? Well, the new covenant brought about something that we could never achieve for ourselves. And number one, it brought about our atonement. The new covenant is Jesus. And so with Jesus achieving our forgiveness on the cross, we have atonement. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The old covenant never achieved atonement. If it did, it would never have been continual. That's why the cross was one time that Jesus achieved uh, perfection uh, and salvation for every one of us one time. That Jesus don't have to keep going back to the cross. That's why when you see crosses, Jesus is not on the cross, right? He's not on the cross. We're not celebrating a Jesus that's still hanging on a cross. We're celebrating a Jesus that went to the cross, that secured salvation, and he got down from the cross, right? And so he's not on the cross. So when you see a replica of Jesus on a cross, he's not there anymore. He accomplished that. And so atonement was given for you and for me through the new covenant. The old covenant never could achieve that. The new covenant also achieved life for you and for me. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus shows up. Lazarus has been dead for a while, and Mary and Martha are upset about it. Of course, we all would be too. Our brothers just died. What do we do? If you'd been here, Jesus, he'd not, he would have not died. Jesus shows up, and he says, hey, the sickness won't lead to death. And she says, I know one day there's going to be a resurrection. I believe that, Jesus. And he says, no. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so what does salvation achieve? Uh, what does salvation mean for you and for me? The wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6, 23. Everybody dies. There's a point of man wants to die and then the judgment. That's what the Bible says. But there is no eternal death. For the believer, right? The Bible says in Revelations there's a second death. But see, for us, separation from God, that's what, that's what eternal separation from God is. That's what hell is, is eternal separation from God, the second death. But because of Jesus that we have eternal life, that of course, you know, the, what you see here, what you have, your external shell, that's going to fade away. 
It's mortal. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pass away. What's not going to pass away? Your soul. That's what's not going to pass away. Why is that not going to happen? Because as a believer, you have eternal life. And so you and I will have life everlasting because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so the new covenant achieves atonement for us. It achieves life for us. It also achieves conscience for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here's what you and I don't have to worry about anymore. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? When I stand before God and I, when I die and the lights are turned out and I stand before God, I don't have to answer the question, am I good enough? Because the answer is no. I'm not good enough. But because of what Jesus did, he imputed his righteousness or he gave me his record. And because of that, when I stand before God, I can, I can have a clean conscience, right? I can lay my head down at night and know that John 10, 29 says that no man can pluck you from the Father's hand. I can know that, that I can have security of what Jesus did, not because of my works, they fade, right? That's what the James says. But because of what Jesus did, I can have the conscience that I can have peace. How can I have peace uh, from God if I don't have peace with God. And so once I, once I get peace with God, which is what Jesus accomplishes, I can have peace from God. I can live in peace because of what Jesus did. And so the new covenant brings about that for the believer. Last but not least, the new covenant brings about access. John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is absolutely no one who comes to the Father except through me. Want to know the Father? Jesus. That's how you come to know the Father is through Jesus. And so the new covenant brings direct access to God the Father. So therefore, if the priesthood of Aaron was sufficient, it would not have been replaced. If it was good enough, if it was sufficient, if our works were good enough, if the sacrifices were good enough, well, then we wouldn't need an atonement. We wouldn't need a replacement. But we do. And so the inadequacy of the old covenant then is simply further evidenced by the fact that it was not re- that it was rather replaced that it was not continued. So again, if it was it was good enough, he talks about in verse eleven that it was insufficient that the perfection of Jesus replaced it. So in verse fourteen, he says, "It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." Now this is. Uh, This is Old Testament uh, bringing us into New Testament, bringing us into today. And so follow me here. Jesus, where was he from? Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Right? Jesus, now Jesus, he was from the tribe of Judah. But what does he represent now in the New Testament after the order of Melchizedek? For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah... And we're talking about Jesus being the high priest. And so Jesus now, from the tribe of Judah, represents the priesthood. Now again, this is to a Jewish, primarily Jewish audience. So how is it possible if priests come from the tribe of Levi and the descendants of Aaron, how is it possible that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah and he represents the priesthood? You see, this was... Not only unthinkable for a Jew, it was illegal. Like, wait a minute now. All my life, I've been taught that 
you had to be from the tribe of Levi. Now you're saying Jesus, who is from the tribe of Judah, is my high priest? How's this going to work? Think about in the Old Testament. We were chatting about that this week. Think about in the Old Testament. Saul was the first king of Israel, right? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, not the tribe of Levi. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And remember the battle, and Samuel shows up. Saul had been waiting, what, seven, eight days, and he waited for Samuel to show up. And Samuel showed up, and Saul had offered the sacrifice. You remember this? And I think it's in 1 Samuel. Remember the story? And so Saul shows up, and, uh, or Samuel shows up, and Saul had already offered the sacrifice. And Samuel said what? Man, what did you just do? Why did you do that? Why did you offer the sacrifice? And Saul responds, well, you didn't show up, so I just went ahead and offered the sacrifice. And so Samuel's like, you can't do that. I'm the priest. You're not the priest. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so for a Jew, remember, it was the tribe of Levi. It was the descendants of Aaron. They were the ones that offered the sacrifices. It wasn't the tribe of Benjamin. It wasn't the tribe of Judah. You couldn't do that. And so that's why Samuel gets so upset, which is ultimately part of the reason that the kingdom was pulled from Saul. And so the priesthood defined the Jewish people. I mean, everything that they did revolved around this. So here's these people growing up in this culture, and everything revolves around the priesthood and the sacrifice of their sins and offering an unspotted lamb to the uh, sacrifice for their sins. And so here the writer of Hebrews says, okay, the whole Old Testament, Old Covenant, Levitical priesthood, sacrificial system, now Jesus, who is not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah, he's going to be the eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. To which the Jews said, I, this, I don't know if I can understand this. You see, the proof of the insufficiency of the uh, Aaron priesthood was further evidenced by what? It was insufficient because it was imperfect. It was insufficient because it was replaced. And it was insufficient that not only it was replaced, it was completely replaced by an entirely different tribe. That God said because of the insufficiency of the tribe of Levi, which of course they're human, we're going to completely change tribes. And the reason for that, you say, well, why, why would God do that? Well, the reason was the Levitical priesthood could not attain salvation for God's people. It was never meant for that. You see, in verse 15, the Bible says in chapter 7, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of what? Not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life or an eternal life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And so here we see that there's these requirements for a priest that have nothing to do with heart issues. Think about this. It has everything to do, he says, not on the basis uh, Jesus becomes the high priest, not on a basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, how in the world did anybody that was born as a descendant of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, how did they have anything to do with that? They didn't. There, I mean, one of the biggest, one of the things my first time going to Brazil, uh, and we talked about this on the way back, that just astounded me 
was the fact that I wasn't born in a third world country. I had nothing to do with being born in the United States of America. Nothing. I had nothing to do with being born in Mississippi. I had nothing to do with that. You didn't either. And so if you were born in uh, the tribe of Levi and the descendant of Aaron, well, guess what? There was a shot that you could be in the priesthood. You had nothing to do with it, but that was the legal requirement that you would be able to, uh, to perform that duty if there were certain requirements that you met. And so as I, as I was reading through this, I thought about the whole, you know, being born where I was born, that God put me where he put me, and I had absolutely nothing to do with that. Well, it was the same thing for the Levitical priesthood. All the qualifications for the Levitical priesthood were external. They had, every bit of them had nothing to do with the heart, but everything to do with the external lineage of where they came from. If you were born uh, in the tribe of Judah and you wanted to be a priest, well, that's not happening. You see, you had to be a Levite. You had to be a Levite, and you had to be free of 142 physical defects. There was no plastic surgery back then, right? I mean, either you made it or you didn't. So if there was a blemish, if there was an imperfection, a physical defect that you possessed, whatever it may have been, that negated your ability to serve in the priesthood, well, then so be it. And so all the, the requirements for the Levitical priesthood had everything to do with external factors. However, what did Jesus say? Over and over and over, Jesus said this. He said, you've heard it said before, but now I say unto you. Right? And so Jesus came, and Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus said, hey, you remember the Ten Commandments? You've, you've heard it said uh, not to commit adultery. You've heard it said not to murder. Jesus said, well, if you even think it in your mind, you've committed it already. So what did Jesus do? He took the external, the old covenant, and he took the external and he said, hey, it's not just about what everybody sees. It's about what starts on the inside, right? And it becomes internal. And so we see here that this new priesthood that was instituted through Jesus has only one qualification, and guess where that qualification comes from? It's internal. So here Jesus shows up on the scene. The writer of Hebrews says the old covenant was insufficient. The Levitical priesthood was insufficient. It was not capable of achieving perfection. And so Jesus shows up. Well, what's the one qualification that Jesus has that is internal? Well, the one qualification that Jesus has comes from verse both 16 and 17, and that is the power of an indestructible life. Or an eternal life, that there is eternality in Jesus, that everything about Jesus, that he existed when? Before, and he'll exist after. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. We talked about this last Sunday morning. Jesus has the power of an indestructible life, an eternal life. And so that was the qualification of the new priesthood, which was just one. All the other priests, all the other Levitical priests, maybe you had a favorite priest during that time and you would go to him and 
uh, you were pals or whatever, and you would take your sacrifice to him, and then, you know, 20 or 30 years later, he passed away, and then someone else came, and they took his spot. And so over and over and over, there was always a new priest that would come in, and some were good and some were bad. And, you know, in children's church this morning, uh, Eli was referenced, and so, you know, Samuel was talked about a little bit. And so, we, we, you know, we have all these stories of some that do good and some that don't, and some that do what they're supposed to and some that don't. And, but they all died, every one of them. They're all dead. Every single priest that existed on the Levitical system is dead. They all passed away. But Jesus, he was, Jesus is, he's both externally, experientially, Jesus was morally and internally perfect. And so that's why Jesus institutes the new perfect high priesthood for us is because he existed before, he exists after. And so Jesus then is the high priest, not because he didn't die. Remember, all Levitical priests died. Jesus is not just the high priest because he didn't die, but because he did die and, in fact, rose from the grave. So he defeated death, something that the Levitical human priest could not do. And so Jesus is an eternal priest for you and for me because he defeated death. So what does that mean for us? We translate that into today. Well, what does that look like for us? We're talking the last couple weeks about this Levitical priesthood and and how all this works in the Old Testament. I understand, you know, they made sacrifices, but guess what? We don't do that today. And you're absolutely right. We don't. And praise God that we don't do that. But It's the access part that we've got to grab a hold of. That all of this stuff that God instituted in the Old Testament was just a foreshadowing that God instituted the Levitical priesthood to pay for, to give uh, coverage, if you will, for the sins of the people because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there was a plan from the very beginning. And that plan had you in mind that when God instituted the Levitical priesthood, he knew that he would send his son Jesus to pay for that sin. And he knew that it wouldn't just cover those people who showed up to the temple and offered the sacrifices, but it would cover those people that were post-Jesus. And that we would look back on that and we would say, man, they didn't have access to Jesus, but because of Jesus that we're past the cross, that we get to look back in the rearview mirror and see all the amazing things that Jesus accomplished. So it's important for us to look back and and see what God did through them because because of Jesus, we don't have to go through that, that we have direct access to God and that we ought not take that for granted, that every single minute of every single second of every single hour of every single day, if you want to talk to God, you can do that. That we have direct access to Jesus because he is infinitely better. That he is the new high priest. That's why everything changed. That's why time changed with Jesus. That's why history changed with Jesus. Because with Jesus, everything changes. If any man's in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things pass away and all, A-L-L, things become new. And so Jesus is not the high priest because he didn't die He died, but he rose again. And all the tombs that the Levitical priests were buried in, they still contain bones. Jesus' does not. And so forever sets Jesus apart from and above every Levitical and earthly priest that ever existed. Because he lives forever. You see in verse 18, the writer of Hebrews says this, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses, And it's uselessness. And so the commandment was never again 
meant to achieve perfection, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope that we draw near to God. What is that better hope? Well, I referenced it earlier in James chapter 4, verse 8. Jesus said, draw close to me, and I will draw close to you. The invitation is for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he is willing that none would perish. 2 Peter 3, 9, God's willing that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance, right? That God is willing for all to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. That the invitation is draw near to me, to be in the presence of God. That's why, because of our imperfection, we were incapable of standing in the presence of God. But because of Jesus, not only do we get to stand in the presence of God, that God indwells us with his presence. That it's not us going to him, but God came to us, and he put the Holy Spirit right inside of us. And so the very presence of God exists inside of every single New Testament believer. And so when we have the access to God and we need guidance, we need discernment, we need direction, we don't have to go to a priest and say, hey, I need some help with this. But we, we go directly to God himself. And so since he has a nature to match that eternal priesthood, he can never be replaced, that we don't have to worry, that our conscience doesn't have to be uh, lacking peace. Well, you know, what if Jesus dies? Well, he did, and he defeated death, and so that's no longer an obstacle for him. And so Jesus then allowed us to draw near to God, that because of Jesus, we can go directly to God, that we can have a better hope. And that better hope is that we have access to God our Father, that we can go directly to Him, that that's the work that Jesus is accomplishing for you as a believer tonight, for me as a believer, that He is interceding for you and for me. And so here's the question. Here's the question. Here's a question you're going to have to answer one day if you haven't done it already. Does God hear the prayers of a lost person? Does God hear the prayers of a lost person? That's a good question, right? Now, in order to, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you couldn't just bebop up to the temple and say, hey, I want to go in and talk to God. Right? Think about Moses in the mountain. Moses was the one who went on the mountain. No one else went. God called Moses into his presence. It was Moses. So how is it possible then for a lost person, an unbeliever, to gain access to God? Think about, think about this. Think about the new priesthood through Jesus. That because of what Jesus did, that someone who is unredeemed, someone who is full of sin, every one of us fit that category, that because of what Jesus did, we have the ability, and the, that's what the better hope is, is direct access to God. So there was a point in your life, there was a point in my life, February the 4th of 1998, where I knelt before God the Father as an unredeemed, lost, full of sin person and said, God, I'm a sinner, and because of my sin, I never have a chance to reach you. 
that I'll never have an opportunity to be in your presence. But I receive the forgiveness that Jesus accomplished on my behalf. And because of that, I can cry out to God as a lost person, and I can ask God to save me. Because the Bible says what? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, which indicates that you are lost before you call upon the name of the Lord, and you receive salvation. So think about that. Anyone can call upon the name of the Lord and have access to the throne room of God. And Jesus hears our prayers. He intercedes for us on our behalf, and that's the access that we have. Think about what that means. In the Old Testament, you couldn't do that. But the only way for you and I to reach God is because of the finished work of Jesus, that you can talk to God. And so I hope that as you have your prayer time tonight and this week and following, that you think about what that really means. That when you can bow your head wherever you're at, then you approach, that when you approach the throne room of God, that it was because of the new priesthood that was instituted through Jesus, that he did all the work, that he made it possible for you to reach God. Because in and of ourselves, it was never possible. And don't, may we never take that for granted. Amen? Well, let's pray. God, thank you so much that through Jesus, you gave us access to you. That God, we can.